Thank you for joining us. This is episode five of Amateur 3D Podcast, a podcast by amateur printers for amateur printers, where we share our thoughts and experience. Our panelists this week are myself, Franklin Christensen, and my friends, Andy Cottom and Kevin Buckner. Chris has decided to get a cold and didn't want to join Andy and I with our raspy voices. <laughs> we sounded terrible these last couple of podcasts, but, you know, it's how you get them dulcet tones. While in editing, I, I uh, have decided that I breathe through my mouth a lot. Okay. And editing that out gets problematic and annoying <laughs> hearing okay. it every time. So I'm going to make a conscious effort to breathe through my nose. That works. Right. <laughs> um, Kevin, have yeah. you worked on any projects this week? I have, yes. Um, so I've been printing costume stuff this week. Uh, my youngest son wants to go as Doctor Strange for Halloween. So uh, I printed up an, an amulet for him that, that, you know, the Eye of Agamotto or whatever it's called that houses the time stone. Yeah. Uh, so printed that up for him. Um, we've got some gold spray paint that he's going to be putting on it before Halloween comes. And, and right now I'm working on um, printing up glove pieces for my other son. He wants to go as a Nazgul for Halloween. And so he, uh, he was looking for costume things and I suggested that uh, he might as well just find the uh, STLs on Thingiverse and we can print up the gloves instead of him buying them from whatever website for $70. Ooh. Yeah. But those articulated fingers, it'll be cool when you get, when you get them done. Yep. I printed some of those for uh, one of my wife's friends for a costume back in the day. They're pretty neat looking. Never assembled them, though, so I don't know how well they work on the FDM version of those. Hmm. Well, I did notice that um, one of the comments on the the STL we got was that the knuckle part was a beast to print because there aren't any very many contact points with the print bed and so i was, i assume that it was made for an fdm printer but it fits just fine on on my build plate so yeah well and because everything needs to be a point of contact with sla it didn't matter <laughs> if there was no right. contact points like, i i always throw a ton of supports on anything i print anyway so i'm like yeah well that shouldn't be a problem for me yeah Cool. Andy, have you done any projects this week? I have actually not done any projects this week. I have uh, been uh, involved in too much in work this week, and so I haven't had much of a chance to even turn the 3D printer on, unfortunately. Bummer. Who, who am I lying? I never turn it off, so it's still <laughs> sitting there on. So. <laughs> yeah, but using it, you know, it doesn't matter if it's on. All it's doing is burning electricity at that point yep that's true uh this week i found a fan issue on the power supply for my printer i say found it screamed at me oh and so i blew it out and you know being a techie that's the first thing you do with a fan i blew it out plugged it all back in 
it still made the noise and I'm like, all right, I'm not going to deal with this. So I bought a new one and the Amazon delivery person decided that rather than climbing a flight of stairs in my community, they were just going to take everything that was on the second or third floor and throw it underneath the stairs of one of the buildings. Oh God. Uh, yeah, that was irritating. I didn't know this was the case. So when it didn't show up the day after it was quote unquote delivered, I went in to Amazon and was like, this never came in. I need you to replace it. And so they sent me a new one and it didn't, I didn't get my fan until Wednesday. Yeah. Wednesday. So I got that installed and I printed off. I learned because I hadn't run my printer since I created the cable support. I learned that I didn't give myself any clearance between the chain for the other cables and the support. So it was grinding on that cable. So I redesigned it and lowered it four millimeters. So it would support and keep the cable from being in the way and not grind on the cable chain. Nice. Um, I've gone back to the drawing board for my baseball hat or uh, the beer cup that's shaped like a baseball bat. Okay. Because the, the bat is cool. It's for the Utah Bees. And while I was at the stadium, I got a Bees ball cap. And that was about when I realized I just really collect these things. I've got <laughs> probably 20 baseball caps. And this one is especially since I've got the bat-shaped beer cup, I would like to display them together. And so going back to the drawing board, I my initial design, I didn't test fit the hat for any sizes that might work. I didn't, you know, didn't QA any of that. And that print was very successful on the, the printer, but it failed as far as value for actual installation of the hat and the bat and all that other fun stuff. So I'm back to the drawing board for that and had a couple of other projects that just kind of floated in and then disappeared about the same time I opened my uh, Fusion 360, and that's it. It's been a slow week for me, I think. Well, it happens. Can't run that sucker hot all the time, so I'm sure your printer is quite enjoying its time off for some of this week. Well, you know, it's only been off for four days out of the last eight months. It should be fine. <laughs> no, I've had that too. I remember when I first bought mine, like that full first week to two weeks, it was constantly running. And that's why you're still learning stuff. Oh, yeah. There's always stuff to be learned. <laughs> and actually, that brings us to our topic for this week, which is lessons learned. Um, we do one on lessons that we refuse to learn and we keep on making the same mistakes over and over and over and refuse to change. I've got a couple of those. You mean like uh, leading a horse to water? <laughs> yeah. You can do all you lead it there. You can bend its head down, but you're not going to make it drink anything. Nope. Um, I've referenced my dad a lot. And a lot of the lessons I've learned about 
manufacturing and the machine shop and all that. I learned from him before I ever set foot in a machine shop. <laughs> and um, one of the bigger ones for me, I think, especially in practice, was when you make a change to a parameter, only make changes to one parameter. And it's because if you change three or four things and it still doesn't work out, you don't know what didn't work and what did work. Yeah. And I understood the theory of that, but I didn't understand the practice until I got my printer. <laughs> well, that makes sense. That's very important to only change one thing at a time because sometimes even going back and removing one of the items you have changed You've now at this point changed so much, you can't always be 100% sure that that was actually what fixed it or not. Right. Right. That's called the scientific method. What? Yeah. The science associated with manufacturing? Say it ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've done that a number of times when I've tried to change a couple of settings on the printer because something wasn't work right. And you change, you know, a couple of items and then it works, but then you haven't learned anything from that because you've changed multiple things, so you don't know what was actually causing the problem. Right. Yeah, what point does it come become, what I call anyway, a non-fix? <laughs> Which is, I looked at it sideways, and it started working. I don't know why. Yep. Can't fix it if it's not broken after that. Yeah. Right. And honestly, all I was doing was goofing with it to see if I could make it worse so it would be easier to figure out what's going on. <laughs> this should have gotten worse. And now you have an unreliable part. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, Kevin, you got one that stands out? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think probably the, the, the single most important thing with uh, printing on a resin printer is you got to make sure you do the uh, exposure rate finder test first and you need to know how to read that it can be it can be difficult to read the rate finder but it is so worth it because it will save you hours of headache trying to figure out why your print isn't working if you can do that and know for from the start that you've got the, the good exposure time instead of trying to figure out, is it this or is it like the support thickness? Is it the contact points? Is it not enough supports? What's going on? If, if you know from the start that your exposure time is good, then it makes it figuring out what's wrong when you fail um, that much easier. Now just to make sure I understand, that's a part that you print that runs under different exposure levels to be able to test it, right? Kind of yes. like our version of a Benchy. Uh, I, I don't know what a Benchy is. <laughs> <laughs> Are you even a 3D printer? <laughs> I don't print FDM. Oh, dear. Uh, Frank is showing him a bunch of Benchies here that he's printed over and over for tests. I use okay. them as color swatches. <laughs> okay oh is that one there that you're showing there okay yeah. yeah this is the improved one um any cubic had sent me one but they didn't send me any guidelines on how to read it and it and it was probably a centimeter and a half tall 
So it used up a lot of resin. This Just to find out. Right. And this guy here, I got off of Thingiverse, and it, and it had a guide on how to read it, and um, it used up five milliliters of resin. Now, what Kevin is showing us looks almost like a card, like a, a little bit larger than a uh, credit card. Like a three by five, maybe? It's closer to three by five. Um, it's not going to work very well because they're both black, but you can see that's yeah. in relation to my phone. This is the size of my build plate right here. Okay. okay. Still, so, um, glad yeah. that you have that uh, ability to do that. Um, whenever I get a new spool, kind of in line with doing the test, whenever I get a new spool, I print off one of those benchies. Um, there's a dragon I mentioned last week or the week before that I always print, and I always print off a clip for the spool. And with all of that, it has the added benefit of I know that the settings that I use for everything else is going to work for this. And um, I can print anything else without changing anything in Cura to make it work. Nice. That is nice. I thought to do something like that, to be honest. It'd be nice to put a, uh, uh, a G-code file together that would do temperature changes, um, some overhang testing, and uh, things like that for a new spool. That would be nice to have for each one. I've got the bad habit of only printing stuff like that to figure out a problem than to prevent a problem in the future, you know, finding out up, up front what the problems might be or what settings I might need. And now you got me thinking through how would I write that kind of file? Well, you I just go ahead and, you know, generate a normal G-code file for it. But mm -hmm. the only one you'd really have to worry too much about is the the heat temperature i know kira has got a it's difficult to get kira to change temperatures per layer like that it's much much easier just to go ahead and print it out all at one base temperature and then go in and add your g-code you know uh instructions per layer that you want it to actually change temperatures to and that right. has always been so much easier to me and kira labels it's got a lot of uh uh, remarks that it puts inside G-code. So it's very mm -hmm. easy to actually find, you know, you, you look in Cura and you're raising and lowering the levels and or the layers and realize, you know, right about at this particular layer, we should change. And then you go back to the G-code settings or the G-code itself and just search for that layer. And then, you know, right at that layer change, you can put in the G-code to be able to change the temperature for your extruder and whatnot. I believe yeah. it's, what M three hundred five or something like that? I don't remember it right off the bat. I'm sure people who know uh, G code are making fun of me at the moment for saying that that was it. But you know, it's it's something simple like that. Huh? Yeah, Andy, you got any particularly valuable lessons learned in your what did we decide it was three years versus <laughs> one for us? That makes it sound like I might actually know what I'm doing, and I've boy do I got some disappointment for you guys. <laughs> I wrote down, I, I took a minute in our notes here and wrote down a couple of things that I learned along the way that um, I usually didn't make the same mistake twice on. Uh, some of the things that uh, when I'm just running a typical job that I've made errors on is like not homing 
one of the accesses before moving them and then running that access, uh, you know, crashing that particular access. I've had a couple of times where you hear that terrible sound of it jumping on the belt, you know. A um, couple it's other ones. The end, is, but the motor keeps pushing. Yeah. Um, running only one PID test when you're reconfiguring the PID on your printer. Um, I thought, wow, this is really nice. It figures it out automatically. And, you know, taking the first numbers it comes up with and using that as your PID settings and then still having problems and then going in and running the PID again to see if you did something wrong and realized it comes up with fairly different numbers. Uh, <laughs> in my experience, I figured I run about 20 tests and then I average out the numbers and that's been pretty good. And for me, starting off with the head cold is an absolutely terrible idea. I want the PID to be accurate when it's maintaining a temperature. It doesn't have to be super good at nailing it when it gets, you know, as it's trying to get up to temperature. If it overshoots a little bit and has to come back down and stuff, fine, as long as it's specifically tuned for after it's reached temperature to maintain that temperature well. So always running the PID tests when the head's hot is, uh, I found to be, you know, quite important. Um, some of the other things I've done is, you know, not ejecting the SD card after you've, uh, you know, sliced your, your STL files and you got the G code. As soon as it says it's saved, there have been a number of times where I've just yanked the card out of the computer because, you know, text files can't be that big. This should be an instantaneous write to the SD card. Go downstairs, pop it in, start printing, and then have the printer just stop in the middle of a job. And then mm -hmm. while you're debugging, going in and not being able to figure it out and you go in and you look at the G code and only half the file was saved, you know? So found it very yeah. important to make sure you eject the SD card on the computer before um, removing the SD card. I've lost a couple of prints to just yanking it out there. And uh, another well, one, well, not play. You should be fine with that. Yeah. I wish that was the case. It does seem to take a minute to write a five or six meg, you know, text file to a card. And that too is I've used an older crappy card because it's text files. I'm not good. I got, it's like a 512 megabyte SD card. It's my, my sneaker net to my printer. So it's not the fastest either, which I'm sure causes some of that problem. Another thing was, is not flushing the old filament out of the head before starting a print. I've ran into the problem where I went to go print something out of TPU and before then, I had some black PETG in the head, and so I put some black PTU in there, you know, put it through, seen a little bit come out of the head, thought it was fine, started printing apart. It was like a washer uh, seal that I used, and uh, as soon as I got it out, it took so little amount of plastic, just what was in the head formed like the lower quarter of the entire part. So the lower <laughs> quarter of this entire part, I, I went to go, I pulled it off the bed, and went and flexed the seal just because TPU, it's always fun to bend those things. And it broke the bottom of the, of the seal. And it just kind of threw me for a loop there for a second. Like, TPU shouldn't break? What the hell's going on? It took a minute to realize, no, that first bottom half of that whole entire part was PETG because I didn't, you know, flush the head out um, of all the old filament that was in there before printing with something different. Hmm. Those are some of the typical running uh, things that I've encountered. Um, I've encountered some others. Well, what's that? With your uh, verifying the code before trying a print, um, 
I, my slicer doesn't work that way, but it does give me a preview. And and I learned months ago to always check the preview because just because the computer says, yep, it's been sliced, everything's fine, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's been sliced and everything's fine. And and that was a lesson that my son actually learned today because I was I had to go to a meeting for a couple hours and we're getting really down to the wire with these Nazgul gloves. And so I, I, I showed him this is what you do. You can get it going. Um, but I, I let him do the the file duplications and the slicing and everything. And then in the middle of this meeting, I get a, a text from him saying nothing printed. And so I'm like, okay, what what could be the possible cause of this? Last time this has happened, that nothing was on the build plate. I didn't clean the build plate the build plate properly and so i i told them all right you need to drain the resin vat clean the the fap make sure you clean the build plate really well and and then put it all back together and get it going again and then and then he he said then he said well there was nothing on the fap i was like okay that sounds like it's an lcd issue so turn off the printer, wait a few seconds, turn it back on. And then, and then, so we got all that going. And then I am, as I was leaving the meeting, he's like, nothing printed again. So I came home and I was like, is it? And I was, he's sitting at the computer and he had this preview pulled up. And I said, is this the preview for this file you sliced? And he said, it is. And I said, hit play. I bet you nothing happens. And he hit play and the whole thing went, there was nothing to the file. It was he copied a blank file onto the flash drive and plugged that in and the printer's like yeah okay. I will it is. I'll print nothing <laughs> nice so checking that preview make sure you it it lets you know yep you've got a sliced file and it also helps you identify any extra bits that the slicer might have thrown in there because it was being um, petulant or whatever. Like it does that from time to time I've noticed. And so I'm like, no, I don't like that little artifact that you've thrown in there. So we're going to rework this a little bit and slice it again to get rid of that artifact. That makes Sounds sense. about right. I actually saw online. Someone was like, always, always check the preview. And with Cura, um, you can slide through all of the layers and see how it's all coming together that way. And there have been a few times where I'll look at it and go, that line's weird, and just kind of ignore it, not realizing that that layer actually printed that way. No, I, I say once. I did that once. And it's like, oh, this is actually how Cura is telling my printer how to do this. I shouldn't have had to learn that lesson the hard way, but now that I have, I'm at least going to trust my intuition when I do check it and I see a problem, which I don't always do, <laughs> honestly. Yeah, the preview on Cura is pretty good. I mean, that's showing you the rendered model from the G-code itself that it generated from the slice. So it's, it's pretty easy to check to see if there is any weird problems or anything like that in it using the preview function. Fun. Yeah. Some of the other problems I've had, if I could touch base on some of the, re the repairs to a printer that have caused me issues in the past, 
Um, one of the biggest ones that affected my printer is trying to reattach a heat sink to one of the stepper drivers that fell off while the power was on. And turns out those heat sinks are conductive. And if you touch the pins while you're trying to reapply that sucker, you're going to short something out. Um, I and then had you let out the, the magic blue smoke. I let out way a lot of the magic blue smoke and then it didn't work anymore. You did um, that so often before you got the printer. <laughs> I could pretend to be surprised, but I would probably <laughs> fail to convincingly be surprised. You know, I keep on checking online to someone who <clears throat> to see if someone will just sell you the magical blue smoke that you might be able to put back in. <laughs> but it's like trying to find blinker fluid nowadays. The stuff is rare as hell. Didn't so. you create a machine a little while ago that at least introduced the smell of the blue smoke into our room? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's been a number of those, I think. More unintentional than I would have liked, but yeah. But yeah, so uh, reattaching those heat sinks, you know, I, I'm not like opening up the control box and adjusting the um, power output on the um, stepper motor controllers themselves is reasonable to me. I mean, things like the ex the uh, the extruder, I want to be able to to hold the extruder itself and turn up the power until I've got it set at the minimum to be able to accomplish what I want it to accomplish. You know, if the head is going to, let's say the carriage, if the X carriage is going to crash into the part, there's absolutely no reason why that X carriage should be able to plow through it and remove the part from the bed and call it a successful print. And then to run the X carriage at those voltages the for the entire print. You know, all you're doing is just heating up your motors. And so it's really nice to be able to make it, you know, turn a motor to move, put it against your hand. So it's, you know, the carriage is pushing against your hand and then just turn and, and raise that power output until you've got a, 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 you know, a little bit, the right about the right amount of force that you're expecting from the carriage before it starts to skip steps. And uh, so operating on those controller circuits with the power running has not been anything too new, you know, because you got to get a screwdriver in there to adjust the potentiometer. But uh, so I thought I could get in there and reattach a heat sink that had fallen off. And uh, yeah, I wound up messing up my entire controller board. Um, my extruder zero on the main board never functioned right again. And I had to swap out the entire main board. So that was really disappointing and a lot of work <clears throat> hmm. but uh, that was one of the biggest things and just in case anybody is thinking if you're having a problem where you're suddenly losing steps one of the things that could be is the stepper controller overheating and not functioning anymore my stepper controllers on my um i think i've got a, a v2 board uh when they are overheated they just stop working there's no air or anything like that it just stops and it looks kind of funny on the print because it looks like you missed steps you know it looks like you got d indexed and uh, that you may have hit something but realistically the the chip itself just overheated and you know stopped functioning for that moment until it cooled back down and then started functioning again that, that could cause some really weird problems cause me some really weird problems and that happened not once, but twice 
And the second time was the cooling fan inside the controller box went bad on me. And I didn't really think much of it because the controller box didn't feel like it really got warm at all. But I'll tell you what, that little bit of extra heat on those um, uh, stepper motor controllers really w was a big deal. And it, it started to cause me from missing steps and becoming de-indexed. So there was a lot of weird problems with that. But now that I know those, I'm definitely not going to make those mistakes again, especially reattaching the heat sinks. Um, correctly adjusting the uh, Dalrin rollers was another thing. I think we talked about this uh, a few days ago or a few podcasts ago where the first time I swapped out my Dalrin rollers, I didn't know that you could adjust the... Um, uh, what would you call it, Frank? It's the little fitting that the Delwin roller actually attaches to, and it's offset so that you can rotate it, and it will move the whole Delrin roller in or out. You um, mean the the tension adjustment? Yeah. For, See, I didn't know uh, how those how tight it holds on to the filament. Yeah. No. No. Nope. Not that. Not that. This is the del just the if your if your printer uses the Delrin rollers, then you might know what I'm talking about. Uh, a lot of the time, they'll have a, a washer. It's kind of like a washer that uh, goes into the mounting hole that attaches to the roller itself. And it's offset just a little bit, and it has a hex head on it that you can put a wrench on. And when you rotate this washer, since it's offset, it will move the whole Delrin roller in or out and allow you to adjust the tension on the roller itself. And I didn't know that that was even an option. So when I tightened them down, I thought they were fine. And I had severely over-tightened a bunch of mine. And I figured, eh, maybe they're supposed to wear down in place. And that makes good sense that they'd be a little over-tight when you first put them on. And then it was till later I realized, no, those are adjustable. And you should have tuned them in. That probably would have saved me quite a bit of problems with my bed. Because they were the one on my bed at the time um, that caused those problems. But, uh, yeah, uh, when it comes to repairs on it, um, that was a big one. Um, another thing that I've ran into is um, we don't really do this anymore, but we didn't used to have the silicone socks for the heads. Those nice little silicone covers for the hot end. Oh, yeah, that That's helped new. insulate it just that little bit from the yeah. fan. Yeah, we used to wrap those wrap the entire hot end with fiberglass. And tape it with that uh, yellow tape. The I don't remember what that tape is called, but the tape that you can't really melt, you know. The Teflon I just, tape? Uh, nope, not Teflon. No, that's, that's like plumber stuff. I'll look it up later. But anyway, used to wrap the head with, with fiberglass matting to, to insulate the head. And back when that was a thing, I discovered, oh, the best way to do this is to use a hole punch to make the holes for the, the tip and the uh, heat pipe um, that uh, you know attaches the two. Use a hole punch for those, and you can come up with a really nice wrapped head. I kind of really kind of miss that about 3D printing. That was one of the things that when you sat down and you wrapped the head up nice and it was just ready to go, it just felt great. But you know, it's also kind of nice that we're not using those anymore because the minute you have you know a bunch of uh, PETG start building up on the head, and you have to scrape that crap off. At least with the silicone sock, you can pull the whole sock off pretty easy and just scrape it off. But when you used to have to wrap your own heads, man, it would get all into the fiberglass and just make this mess. 
And then rewrapping the head meant you have to pull the whole darn thing off to rewrap the whole thing. So that was a huge issue back then, too. Back then. It was like three years ago. <laughs> Not too far ago, I guess. As far as technology is concerned, though, you got to figure <laughs> the complexity doubles every year. So that was a 16th as complex <laughs> three years ago than what it is now. Yeah. yeah. So when you say you were wrapping it in fiberglass, do you mean like that pink uh, spun insulation that looks like cotton candy but makes you really itchy? The stuff I had was white. It was kind of whitish, and it came in mats. Uh, mats on mats. It was kind of weird. You could really separate it into small pieces and then and then cut it into strips to be able to wrap around the head. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, I... My printer came with one of those little things on the head and I used it until it broke and I bought some more online and used it once and then pulled it off and just left nothing on there. And it seems to be doing fine. Oh, really? So you don't even run with a silicone sock, huh? Nope. That's interesting. I mean, I've, I've had that work. In the past, too, when I haven't used one or it fell off on me or whatnot, but never done it consciously, though. Yeah, yeah, that is true. I think I'd be a little too worried of of the PID controller having to compensate for that, and you getting spikes in the temperature as you're going. But if you haven't noticed any problems with your prints themselves, then it sounds like you're, you're no problems. You know, can't why why fix something that's not broken? So nothing serious, anyway. Then I do print at a higher temperature than you're comfortable with, too. So maybe that difference in temperature is part of why my prints come out okay at that higher temperature and you're worried about fluctuations. Yep, you got a very good point there, too. That that could definitely be, be masking um, something that could be a small pro an issue. I guess if you ever come down and you know, come down in temperature and you notice a little bit of those at least you'll you know think twice about maybe oh try a silken sock and see if it'll make the problem go away or something and i so. do have four of them floating around here somewhere so i wouldn't even have to wait for the order to come in that's good that's good and i still can't find the name of the tape i'm talking about i'm seeing tons of pictures for it but <laughs> no one is giving me the actual name of the tape you guys would recognize it it's yellow it's a yellow tape it looks like, uh, yeah, just clear tape, but it can handle the the temperatures that the print, you know, the hot end gets up to, and you just wrap the whole head with those. But, the only okay. thing that comes to mind for me that's yellow is masking tape, and I'm pretty sure that would not stand up to any serious temperature changes. <laughs> yeah, I don't think masking tape would do too well with that. That's for sure. <laughs> Uh, other problems that I've ran into is um, pulling too much power from the, the PSU on the printer. Um, I got really lucky with my printer. They decided to swap out the bed heater for a 110-volt heater on my TiVo Tornado. Um, that meant that the PSU only had to supply voltage to a relay and not the actual heater itself, which gave me quite a bit of headroom to be able to do you know, to make, excuse me, to make, um, to utilize that for other stuff. And you guys know I have water cooled the uh, cold end of my printer. 
and that I've water cooled it with Peltier plate coolers uh, in order to do that. That way I can run subambient um, on the cold end of the printer if I wanted to. And most of that was to try to get TPU to print on a Bowden printer, uh, which it did actually help quite a bit. You send cold TPU down a Bowden, it is quite a bit less flexible than, you know, at room temperature. But in order to run those those Peltier plates, um, I just uh, hooked them up to a buck converter off my PSU on the printer because the PSU runs at 24 volts. Those Peltier plates are optimized at about 18. So I used a buck converter to dump it down to 18 and ran it off that and uh, was running fine for a while. And then I wound up the Peltier plates just stopped working one day. And um, my PSU had a fuse for the, the power supply for meant intended for the bed that I was pulling from. And I had blown the fuse, but I had ordered new Peltier plates. I had gone through that whole ordeal trying to get them to work again and spent a lot of hours trying to figure out the problem before I realized it was the fuse. And so when you're utilizing the PSU on your printer, make sure you're staying within its uh, amperage. You don't want to pull too much from it and risk damaging the PSU for those. Hmm. Um, but, uh, and then I think some of the other things, uh, when it comes to upgrade problems like that, another thing was when you are upgrading, let's say the head of your printer, or you're adding a new um, part cooling fan to it or something like that, Making sure you have all the pieces printed and put together, you know, uh, ready to go before taking your printer apart and realizing, oh, I forgot this piece and having to put the whole thing back together again the old way in order to print the part that you're missing and then take the whole damn thing back apart again. I ran into that one more times than I'd like to, uh, that I didn't actually wind up learning from. So maybe that one shouldn't be part of this particular podcast. You've learned that you should learn something, and like <laughs> you know, it, it's twenty percent of the way there. Right. Yeah. Very true. Right. Very true. So that's progress. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think the only other thing I could think of when I was doing this is when I was trying to print TPU on a Bowden style printer. I I think I mentioned this before. I learned that a retraction actually will fix the clog issue that I was having with TPU, and so I I wrote some software to inject more retractions to help it from not clogging and the software that i wrote to do that i uh instead of being smart and just testing it out on the printer without printing anything instead i would try to print something i would start something to print to test that make sure the injected code i was using was actually functioning the way it was and that led to some issues like me mixing up the um let me think here in the g code there was a command to take the printer off of a relative location into an absolute location and that way i could tell it to so i would take it out from relative to absolute and then i can take it and tell it to move the extruder up about four millimeters and then back down about four millimeters which is a retraction and then to put it back into relative mode and then learned really quick that uh, when you move from from absolute into relative it does it updates the relative with the absolute coordinates 
And so that pretty much homed my head in its current position whenever it did that. And then de-indexed it and crashed in, you know, into the, uh, the side of the, 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 the home position for the, the printer. So that caused a lot of issues too, instead of sitting there and just trying it without printing a full part when I'm editing stuff like that. I guess where I'm going with this is if you ever mess with your G code to, you know, maybe try out the section of G code by itself before putting it in the middle of a print and expecting it to work by the time it gets to that particular instruction. Wow. I agree. Yeah. But at the same time, trial and error is sometimes the only way to learn. Yeah, um, very true. 40 years in the machine shop gave my dad a lot of sayings. And one of them is people learn one of two ways through uh, repetition or through shock. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Sounds to me like you needed to learn through shock to get it right, though. <laughs> yeah, it takes a few times of getting zapped before you start retaining anything. <laughs> um, I think you've got that backwards, Andy. <laughs> <laughs> you get shocked a few times and you stop remembering things. <laughs> that might explain the terrible memory I have. Yeah. I would accept that. <laughs> it, it just means that your body redirected the electrical charge through your head instead of across your heart. Uh, that's the important thing. So for me, there was another two things. One of them, I guess I shouldn't be too surprised about. Um, being a software engineer and being in the tech world the way I am, there's a lot that comes from that world as far as planning and designing and figuring stuff out that actually applies directly to 3D printing. And um, Kevin touched on it a little bit earlier, and it's the scientific method. You know, you, you hypothesize and then you test and then you observe the results and, you know, uh, recursively go through this process until you find either what works or a thousand ways that don't work. Um, and the other one um, is be prepared to fail. E even I, I've come to appreciate that even the people that print professionally are not certain that the print is going to be successful until they pull it off of the plate and it passes QA. Yeah, um, I completely agree with that. Right. And if you get frustrated easily with something not working, take a break, take a breather, reset, and then come back to it. But if you're not prepared to fail, you're going to have a horrible time working with these 3D printers because even the expensive ones that are nice and pretty and do all this amazing, cool stuff, it's not going to be 100%. And sometimes there's no easy explanation for why it failed. And you're not going to know even that much until you reslice and reprint and it goes well, you know? And so yeah. you just keep at it, hack at it, beat it in the submission and try to learn from the failure as much as you can, but you got to be prepared to fail. And you know, kind of tying it in with the uh, software engineering thing. 
um, there's a concept of moving quickly. You know, a an okay plan now is better than a perfect plan later kind of idea. And the point is, if you fail quickly, then you can recover quickly. Whereas if you're slow to fail, you may not even know that you failed until you've put tons of hour into it. Hours. Wow. You, until you put tons of time into it. And then you have to go back to zero. And prototyping is one of the great things about 3D printing, and it allows you to fail quickly, which is wonderful. Yeah. Iteration is definitely a good way to take care of a lot of these problems. And it's only effective if you recognize the problem and try something different. Right. Although I got to admit, when you run into some problems, recreating them to make sure it wasn't a one-off is probably a good idea, too. I've had tons of one-off problems that you don't really have much of an explanation to. And when you just reprint, even from the exact same file, the exact same setup, and things just work fine. And you never really wind up being able to identify, well, what happened with that one print, you know? I've had that happen, and I've had it happen where it fails a second time in the exact same place, but it still doesn't make sense. Right. And so I re-slice and try one more time, and it works fine. Hmm. And um, that whole process, you know, just kind of a, a buried lesson learned is if my print fails and I end up with the spaghetti uh, plastic all over the place, I don't even try reprinting on that file. I go in and re-slice and print it again that way. And at the very least, it keeps me from trying one more time and having it maybe fail in the same place. And if it fails again, it'll probably be in a different place and I can learn from the two in a row because then it's not an anomaly anymore. Yeah. Right. And I hate anomalies. <laughs> and going back to your point about if you're, uh, if you're easily frustrated when things fail, uh, maybe look at a different hobby. Um, you know, I said a, a few episodes ago that my printer is great because it worked right out of the box, and that is true, but I didn't work right out of the box. <laughs> and so, like, I, I was able to print their test file, and then I went to print a little Baby Yoda ornament, and I could not get it to work, and I could not get it to work. And I tried reslicing, and I tried different things, and I contacted customer service a lot, and and it was, it was a lot of trial and error. And... Um, and I'm pretty sure if I were to try again with that same model, it would work just fine because I know a lot more now than I did then. Um, like I only mentioned one of the things, but like with with resin printers, you never want to have like it on the build plate if you can avoid it. You want to raise it up five millimeters and then just support the crap out of it. Use a raft if necessary. And... And that'll work a lot better. And the other thing that I've learned, or I should learn, uh, I keep making this mistake, is I keep not starting things out at an angle. Uh, you don't, for some reason, you don't want to have a, a large flat section that is parallel to the build plate. You want to tilt that at like a 30 degree, 30 to 45 degree angle. Um, which is a lot of variance in there, but uh, if it's not at an angle, I've found that I've had a lot of failures from that because it's 
struggles to pull all of that resin off of the FEP when it first gets to that point. It's easier for it if it builds up to the large thing that needs to be pulled off of the FEP. That mm. makes sense. So you can't really bridge with your printer then, can you? Bridge? Yeah, it sounds like uh, if you're... um. The, the way you describe makes perfect sense why it wouldn't come off the FEP that way. Uh, a trick that uh, us FDM guys can do is we can run, if you, if you can run from a point, let's say point A over to point B over a void, we can accomplish that as long as it will move from one spot that's already existing to another spot that you've already got plastic from, you know, essentially making a bridge. Okay. If it's all on the same layer line um, that way. Yeah. And that's an area that doesn't necessarily have to be supported. And there's right. some techniques to be able to make bridges that are a hundred to even 200 millimeters long and still be effective without any kind of supports underneath. But that does make sense that if minute you start to pull that, bridge away from the FEP that it would stick to the FEP in yep. the, you know, near the middle of the bridge. So, Yeah, no, uh, you've got like millimeters to work with before it won't work. Otherwise, oh. it'll, it'll just stick to the FEP too much. And then uh, it might eventually get to the point where it will pull that resin off of the FEP, but then you've got like a flattened part of your model and it's ugly. Makes sense. Yeah. Um, and then the the last little bit that I have for lessons learned is that cleaning is key. You have to make sure everything is perfectly clean when you're starting out because if if it's not, it's introducing potential error into the system and you don't want that. And then Always, always, always check the resin vat after a print to make sure there's not any solid bits in there, especially after a failed print. Um, I, I had that happen uh, one time. I, a print failed for whatever reason, and a little tiny piece of a support fell off into the resin vat, and I didn't check. And the build plate pushed that piece into the FEP, left an imprint, but it wouldn't contact it well enough to uh, to have anything adhere to the build plate because it was too far away. And so I ended up with this big blob of um, resin hardened onto the FEP when I realized there was a problem. And this was like an hour and a half into it when I looked over and saw that there was nothing on the build plate as it was moving up and down. And <laughs> that was, that was terrible. Um, so always make sure your, your resin vat doesn't have anything solid in it. And that'll greatly increase your chances of success. That applies to FDM printers as well. It doesn't hurt to dust off your build plate between every print. I use one of my uh, microfiber towels and I just swish it off a little bit. And I'm not certain that it always matters, but uh, the once or twice that I forgot and like the part comes loose or something like that and it gets pushed around, I can almost guarantee that it's because there was dust on the build plate and I didn't wipe it off. So 
Yep. I encountered that a lot too. Same thing. As soon as you scrape the build plate, scrape all the plastic off the bed, it's best to wipe that sucker down before you print again because, yeah, sticking to dust, it's not sticking to the bed. Well, being a horizontal surface, it's going to get a lot of dust on it. So, yeah, very true. Very true. Yep. Yep. I also need to make a correction. This uh, exposure finder isn't actually the size of my build plate, it's the size of the screen. So when we were talking about the screen size of a few episodes ago, Andy had mentioned that it's about the size of a phone screen. And that's actually, yeah, that's true. That's about the size of a, a iPhone. So that's essentially your, your build area that right there is, is yep. the area that you can build. Yep. Huh. Yeah. Different world. Not going to complain. It's a different thing. That's one reason we like having Kevin on the podcast, though, is he gives us a uh, a perspective that we don't necessarily even consider because yeah. of FDM. We don't need to think about some aspect of it, and he brings it right. up, and we get a well-rounded uh, presentation here. Yeah, the way the way I look at it is, you you know, in those uh, '80s exercise videos, you'd always have the group of women with the token guy in in one corner doing their exercises but then in the other corner you've got tammy who isn't using any of the weights or anything she's just kind of doing her thing with nothing and they always draw attention to it they're like so we're all doing this and then there's tammy she's just kind of going through the motions without the weights that's kind of what i'm doing here i'm i'm the odd one out (laughs) it's about going through the motions though let's be honest if you're going through the motions you're being active right and you know, one of these days, Kevin, you can grow up and get a real printer. <laughs> no, yeah, no. you you say that, but every single one of us is considered going SLA after hearing and seeing what Kevin can complete, though. <laughs> no, I, I, I thought about getting a second FDM printer. Oh, really? Oh, I I even looked around a little bit before saying, no, I'm not going to be able to use this enough. If I really need something SLA, I'll just ask Kev to print it for me if he would. But uh, yeah, oh my gosh, the quality that SLA can produce is amazing compared to FDM. Agreed. I won't take ownership of this. I imagine my cousin was probably planning on getting a printer for a while. And us doing the podcast kind of gave him that last little bit of a push. But he went and got an SLA printer. Oh, good man. <laughs> so it should be fun. You figuring it out? Well, I, I think that it finally came in. I don't know what he's done with it yet. And he hasn't posted anything on Facebook. So that is all pending. All right. <laughs> That's good. Well, I think that it's a good time to call it. Sounds yeah. good. We'd like to thank all 10 of our friends and family for listening to the very end. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please give us all the stars. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so in our Facebook group, Amateur 3D Pod. Until next time, we're going offline.